You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. Thank you for joining us for Millennium Discourses with Sajad Yub and Sheikh Ibrahim Skaitanal. Today we're looking at Discourse number 14, Know Yourself and You Will Know Your Lord. Often we describe as deriving from the meaning of to cover. Why do you think we all have elements of kufr in us? Well, if it, if it is as we assert that before endless time, our Rabb asked us to affirm that he was our Rabb. In other words, the one who, is, who, has, who, has, who has taken it on himself to be the bestower and the withholder. The one who grants us what we need and the one who withholds catastrophes from us. Um, if that is true, and we, we must have known that at the time, it must have been, you know, uh, and then we came into the world and we, we then start to suffer fear or regarding provision or, or the terror of loss. Um, uh, you, you know, if this is, then surely we must have forgotten something. I mean, if this is, if we have this experience, surely we must have forgotten something. Something must have been covered. Something must have been veiled. You know, and I do think that we get veiled. I mean, I, I think we, we veil the truth. We've, we, 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 are, we veil the truth that there is a guardian Lord in charge, that he does withhold the catastrophes from us, and that we do have a moment-by-moment engagement with him, that he is, in fact, the most intimate experience and reality known to us, and that all other things are secondary to that. We hide that. We make things other than that experience significant. And how do we know that we make things other than that experience significant? Because if that ex- if if we if we granted that that experience its preeminence, we would it wouldn't be possible to experience fear, and uh, <clears throat> and it wouldn't be possible uh, possible to grieve, because it it you know grief is a backward looking thing. It's saying I have been done in. You know, I've lost something. But if you realize that, that, that everything that's been taken away from you has been taken away from you in your best interest in order to make you the being that you're designed to be, what accusation would there be? I mean, if you, if, if I, if you really trust, let's say, for instance, this is metaphorical, but let's say, for instance, you, um, you have a teacher and the teacher is teaching you something really intricate. And in the course of this teaching, you need to learn some really uncomfortable truths about yourself. If you truly believed that the teacher was saying this to you in your best interest, you would, despite the fact that you still experience the discomfort of the loss and of the, the you know, you would, still, you would still be grateful for the experience. You wouldn't grieve the experience. If you knew there was, you were in the hands of a guardian who had your really had your best interest in heart. You would at heart you would recognize that all things that were taken away from you were taken away from you as part of the blessing for you to be you. You would not grieve. You would also not fear. You would not look forward at life and think there's a looming catastrophe 
and the sky is going to fall on my head. You know, because you know that the sky has every right to fall on your head moment by moment, you know, but it doesn't because it's being held up. The catastrophe is withheld. If, you know, why should I worry about a catastrophe that may hit me at the end of the month when I don't manage to pay my mortgage? When in fact, there's a gazillion catastrophes that could kill me in the next second. You know, there could be a meteor hurling at our planet that would take us all out. You know, or the beam of this house that I'm worrying about could, you know, a roof beam could fall on my head. You know, in fact, as we've indicated before, the odds of annihilation beat the odds of staying alive moment by moment. I mean, infinitely. Then there's an infinite number of things that can go wrong. So why haven't they? Because there is a wrong. So, 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 so um, we really, uh, uh, we, we really don't need to grieve and we don't need to fear. That is such a great analogy. That the the world is conspiring moment by moment to take us away. Hmm. It doesn't even have to conspire. It's just, you know, it's, it's, in fact, the conspiracy is what keeps you alive. <laughs> He's the best conspirator. You know, the world, because it is potentially completely random, that means there's an infinite number of things that could randomly go wrong, which means you should be dead. And right now you should be dead. But there's a conspirator who sits behind this panoply of just wild and ungovernable events that actually governs them so that the bullet doesn't quite hit you, it just misses you. Every moment there's an atomic bullet that just misses you all the time, you know? So the, the, the conspiracy, the conspiracy is the continuation. That's the conspiracy. And it's a divine conspiracy. And it's a conspiracy in your interest. And if the bullet does hit you in the month of Ramadan. Then well, then it, then it doesn't matter, does it? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> then you're meant to take the bullet. The nafs is constructed, is a constructed identity based on the past. Is that correct? Hmm, I think that's true. So who were you before they called you Sajjad? This being, because uh, you know, may, maybe your parents decided on the name before you were born. I know sometimes this becomes such an issue of dispute that it becomes a cliffhanger. You know, the child's already in the world and no, 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 we're going to call him, uh, you know, Abdul Latif. No, you can't call him Abdul Latif, that's my grandfather's name. There's a big dispute. So in the meantime, there's this nameless blob sitting and lying in the crib. Who is that nameless blob? Because that's who you were. You know, um, a being with no name. No, that's, that's what came from the Rab. And that, by the way, is what's going back to the Rab. All this other stuff that they plastered on you, layer by layer by layer, in your lifetime, is all going to get stripped away. It is this wakefulness that came from the Rab. 
and it'll be, it'll be that wakefulness that returns to the Rob, everything else will go away. Who we think we are is a completely fictitious, constructed reality. Well, you can't even call it, it's an illusion, a constructed illusion, you know. That, that, so at some point they did a number of, they must have done really sneaky things to this wakefulness to get this wakefulness to be so confused that it saw this face in the mirror and said, yes, that is me. That's, and, it's, and this thing that is looking through these eyes is called Sajjad, you know? And maybe it happened that after a, while, a few iterations where they saw you kind of perking up at the wrong name, you know, you know what I mean? I was a, so, so you had a little cousin called uh, Mustafa. They said, Mustafa, and your eyes figured, no, 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 you're Sajjad, you idiot, you're Sajjad, you know? So, 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 oh, okay, no, no, I'm so, this, this one said, okay, this one's a job. Yeah. So, so we learn who we are. And each one of these steps of learning who we are are kind of more about learning who we're not. I mean, if, so, so who you think you are. So let's assume, so John's up, we're, we're, we're on a plane. You, you know, we don't know each other, we, but, but we seat next to each other on an aircraft and we're flying somewhere. It's a long, long flight. And uh, we've, uh, the, the in-flight, God forbid, but this happens, the in-flight entertainment system breaks. Mm. Right, so, and we only have each other as company because, you, know, I mean, you know, you've slept enough, you bored out of your skull, you didn't, didn't bring anything to read. So there's me, so we start talking as human beings do. And, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, assuming that uh, we start, you know, so if we started talking, I mean, with the question, so what are we likely to say to each other? Well, the first thing is you introduce yourself to the person, you know, and so, well, what would that look like? Well, say, you know, well, I, I am Ibrahim Skatema. Um, I'm, I used to have a we used to run a consulting firm in South Africa. I still have a small role there. Um, I, uh, I'm 62 years old. I have four children and four grandchildren. And, uh, and, and I like talking about myself. And then what I think when I'm saying these things, I'm, I'm actually saying things about myself. It doesn't occur to me that I'm actually not, I'm saying more about what I'm not than what I am. So if I say I'm Ibrahim Skatema, do you know how many possible words and names that excludes? I mean, I'm not Sui Hinghong or Fred Bloggs or Sally Come Again. I'm, do, you, do you understand? So, so every single thing I say about myself says more about what I'm not than what about I am. Every single statement I make about myself, about my identity, is, is a statement of exclusion. If I say to you I have four grandchildren, it means I don't have any five or none. So I've got four children, it means I don't have three or two. I've got four, you know, everything I say to about, about myself is, is, is says more about what I'm not than what I am. And, and these things, these statements of exclusion are like boundaries. They, they bars to a cage. They delineate. They separate me from others. I'm not part of the mass that are called this possible whole sort of nondescript possibility of stuff. I'm this one, this individual one, separated from that mass. That's how you can identify me. You see, it's my identity, my distinction. Uh, th this one has four children, not 85, four, four. That's what separates me from the mass. 
You know, so all this collusion, collaborative collection of stuff is what ma makes me who I think I am. It's, every one of them separates me from the mass, makes me distinct, gives me boundary, pulls me away from. And that makes me feel, well, maybe that's comforting, but what I, what I, what I forget is that, that, that it is alienating. It is separating me from what isn't me, you know? And so we then wake up one day and we feel deeply lonely, um, separated from this vastness that we're looking at, thinking this thing is, hell, that's scary and I'm just a small thing that's been plonked, popped out of it, that's looking at it, and, 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 and it's potentially hostile to me. So our nafs, our identity is really, is this, is, this, is this sense of separation from the world. That sense of separation from the world is a learned phenomenon. We don't come into the world with us. It gets, our consciousness, our being, the thing that's looking through your eyes gets molded and shaped by being given these parameters, these structures, these, this sense of separation. And um, which means to say that one's sense of nafs is also uh, the architecture of your suffering. Because mm. every one of the things you say about yourself is then an exclusion. It's a, it's a line of demarcation. And it basically it's saying it is also where I am I'm conditioned. And that conditioning is then what produces my conditional motive. So my conditional motive is based on my conditional conditioning and my conditioning is based on my biography. It's based on my experiences as I grow up. I get increasingly defined and restricted into this little box that I think I am. You know, um, and, and then at some point in our lives, we need to decondition. We need to unwrite the story. We need to incrementally dismantle the bars, dismantle the nafs, dismantle our sense of existing as separate beings from the world that we're in. Because th that increasingly, incrementally introduces us to that being who we were when we came into the world. The scintillating, formless drop in the ocean. This thing that is one with everything that isn't it. The, in other words, one with it all. Yeah. Um, but that comes at the price of our, our sense of identity, our sense of existing as a separate uh, individual. Thank you for that. Is that possible in this lifetime to get to that stage? Well, I mean, I suppose, so, so, so the, technically it has to be possible. Um, uh, whether you could still function, that, that's a different question. So, so uh, I mean, obviously, somebody who's deeply comatose, uh, and, and we, or people who have a near-death experience, I mean, very often people's accounts of near-death experiences are ecstatic. In other words, they have this experience of becoming embraced in this matrix of love, which is the sea that the whole of existence is made of. People have that experience. They don't even know how to articulate it. It's too big for words. It's such a vast experience. 
but they were, they were they were clinically dead when they were having that experience or they were comatose mm. you know, so 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 technically yes it is possible in this life well the question is can is it possible to a, be a fully functioning human being and have that experience um so i'm less and less convinced i think uh, the 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 reason why we're alive is that we're still battling some piece of conditioning uh and so so i think even the most enlightened people suffer because we know that the that Rasulullah suffered he had discomfort he had things that made him um, sad he had things that made him um, uh, concerned uh, so so we, uh, we and he if, if he's the most exemplary human being to say that on this side of the grave there is categorically an end to suffering that uh, um, that would be naive so I think we can have glimpses of the state and we can have an experience of the state which is very immediately at hand almost like the background of your of your being um uh but uh, uh i while you're alive i don't think you can experience this uh, as an ongoing state and be functional so i do think there are people who are alive who experience that ongoing state but i don't think they're, they're functional anymore i mean uh, the, the person's sitting somewhere you know drooling in the corner of a zawiya somewhere and somebody on occasion put some bread in his mouth but i mean you know, the person is just completely dysfunctional. They cannot manage themselves to the bathroom. Never mind manage an affair or manage their life. Mm. Thank you for that. The rule you mentioned is uh, androgynous and has no gender. Do you think this has any bearing on the discussions of gender in the modern day? I don't. Um, um, and my rationale for this is as follows. Uh, we, the essence of who you are mm. is, is, uh, is androgynous. I mean, it's uh, this, you, you've taken on, you've learned to be who you are. I mean, in a sense, you kind of like, but um, that doesn't mean to say that we therefore don't have the responsibility to uh, um, uh, act consistently with our, our role in life, you know. Um, so, so this truth doesn't then um, uh, suggest that we have a, a licentious approach to sexuality, that we have uh, no take on gender roles, that uh, uh, you know, um, we just we just of the view that um, uh, this is not the essence of the matter. You know, I mean, a human being is a human being first, before they're a woman or a man, or you know, and that's the thing that you need to respect. You know, and maybe the way in which you um, uh, express the respect might be different from how you deal with a woman to how you deal with a man, that that's entirely possible. So for instance, um, it does horrify me a little bit that they have um, 
uh, you know, the army that I served in, for instance, would not have women in the same barracks as a man, as men. I mean, that's just it looks completely strange. And there are the two armies now that do that. You know that. Um, uh, so, I, I, and I think it's a discourtesy actually to the people involved. I mean, it, in, it's an unnecessary complication to the people involved. That doesn't mean to say that in essence, they're all human beings and they're all human beings first. I think that is true. I think we are human beings first. You also mentioned you cannot know who you are without dying. What does this mean to the average man and woman? So we, we, we have spoken about this, um, uh, the sense that we exist as separate beings that have an identity and stand out from the, the morass, that this is an invention. It's something that we get educated into experiencing. It's not the primary experience, you know. Um, uh, which means to say who you really are is that thing that came into the world, that scintillating brightness that came into the world, that looked out at the world, and so that's who you really are. So Sajjad has to die. I mean, unfortunately. I mean, the thing that you think you are, this constructed thing, has to go away for you to discover who you really are. Mm. But this is not a horrifying prospect, actually, because the, the thing that you, that you think you are produces an, uh, an impossible problem because it's a very needy thing with all of these conditions that it requires of the world. And so it's a thing that is constantly either in a state of grief or in a state of fear. You know, um, of things that have been taken away from you or things that you terrified of, of, of losing or of you being or losing yourself losing your life you know so um so uh, uh the the if we say that the thing that you have to die sajad has to die this idea of who you are has to die then um uh, this is not uh, uh this is not morbid i mean it's uh, it's it's saying you know um, give up your, your, your bondage and you'll discover who you really are. Give up your complicity to your bondage and you'll discover who you really are. And this, this immense being who, who is, is informed by the entire universe. You're made up of all of it. In fact, you are the macrocosm. You contain absolutely everything inside. So you, you give up the small for the big. You give up the, the vulnerable for the unassailable. You give up the needy for the fulfilled. Uh, so th that's the prize. This, it's not a morbid thing to say. Uh, you're looking for the, for the death of the self, or for the death of the nafs. You know, it's uh, something one should aspire to. Manners maketh the man. Does this apply to courtesy? Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> how, do I, how do I know that uh, the, um, uh, how do I find out that I don't have to impose my needs on the world, that the world will deliver for me what is in my best interest through the agency of the world? will deliver my best all to me in the fullness of time without my agency. I come to my own defense. 
Well, I stopped doing so. I restrained myself. And, I, and, and this of myself is a moment-by-moment -moment affair. In every situation that you're in, restraining yourself means asking yourself not what do I want from the world, but what does the situation that I'm in want from me? What is the appropriate thing to do for the other here? means in this engagement, I'm not the significant one, you the significant one. I suspend my sense of significance for you. I, that's what respect means, and that's what courtesy means. I contain my behavior. You know, courtesy means I don't just behave as I like. Courtesy means in every situation, I act as if the other that I'm looking at is the significant one in the situation. That's what courtesy means. So I, I restrain myself. I'm, 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 I'm aware of what is... Uh, what might be injurious to you, and I, and I act accordingly. And then I find that spontaneously I get what I wanted from the world. What a wonderful note to finish off on. Thank you Thank very you. much, Jeff. Thank you for joining us and answering those questions. Listeners, you are listening to Millennium Discourses. We will be back tomorrow with another topic. We would like to thank Etzko Skatema. Till tomorrow, Allah Hafiz from us all.